What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Arnie's. We are three men ready to confess our misdeeds because everyone around us keeps dying. I'm Matt Johnson, and I will definitely be more wary of bartenders in the future. I'm Keith Baker, and I will be partying in nightclubs nevermore. And I'm Austin Terry, and I always break out into Poe poetry mid-conversation. That is true. I've always said that about you. On today's show, of course, we're continuing the spooky season content with Mike Flanagan's newest Netflix horror series with The Fall of the House of Usher. It's been a fun yearly tradition for us. We covered The Haunting of Blind Manor in 2020, the first year of our podcast, Midnight Mass in 2021, and The Midnight Club last year. So be sure to go back and check those episodes out if you haven't already. And I was super excited to dive back into another one of his projects. Even more excited to talk about it with you guys because I have no clue what your thoughts are on it. Um, This one is more of a family drama kind of combined with gothic horror, which I guess now that I think about it, that does seem to be somewhat of a trend for Flanagan. Let's go ahead and just get into it. Austin and Keith, remind everyone of your thoughts on Flanagan's latest shows and give us your non-spoiler thoughts on The Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, like you said, Matt, this has become a fun little tradition for this podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of everything Mike Flanagan's done at Netflix. I think the top two standouts for me are definitely Hill House and Midnight Mass, uh, followed closely by Blind Manor. And then The Midnight Club was kind of the one where I felt like he stumbled a little bit. Still good stuff in there, but just not my favorite of everything he's done. And going into the fall of the House of Usher, I think this is kind of a nice little comeback from last year's The Midnight Club. I've really enjoyed the story. I like that this is kind of a mystery thriller. He's given us romance. He's given us traditional horror. He's given us takes on religion. So I like that this is kind of the next evolution of Mike Flanagan's storytelling. A modern adaptation of an Edgar Allan Poe work. I was curious how that was going to kind of work into like a episodic format. And I thought... They did a great job of bringing those elements in, bringing elements of all of Poe's stories into each episode. So I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was kind of hooked from the beginning. I think my only nitpick with this one is it did get formulaic and you kind of knew the pattern of each episode. And I I was kind of hoping that was going to break, but you kind of knew like, all right, family members are dying. Someone's going to die at the end of each episode. And it, it kind of repeated that pattern uh, throughout the show. So that's the only thing I, I felt kind of got, it got kind of got routine. But other than that, I mean, I, I had a great time with this, and this was a really good add to the October catalog of Mike Flanagan shows. Yeah, same here. I had a pretty good time with it as well. Like you said, Austin, I think the the formulaic thing it was predictable at times, but it didn't wasn't a huge issue for me overall. I had a great time with it. But jumping back real quick with the other shows, Hill House is still my top for sure. And then I loved Bly Manor, and I loved Midnight Mass, and then Midnight Club, as you guys know, was pretty much a dud for me. Um, but I was so still pumped for uh, Fall of House of Usher, you know, bringing back all the old cast members with a few new ones in there was really cool. Our boy Mark Hamill made an appearance. That's conjecture, and you know it. <laughs> <laughs> objection. The laziest objection ever. I've ever seen any courtroom scene ever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, Bruce Greenwood. Oh, man, he's so so good in this. And I love the flashbacks. I love like all the all the kids and the, yeah the storyline was just fun and i i did like the the poe aspect about it following that kind of theme and then yeah and like you said earlier austin with the with the like the hot topic of the pharmaceutical industry being in there that was good and even we even get some ai in there maybe too and some other hot topics going on right now so yeah it was it was fun all around good characters great acting a fun show. I, I like Mike Flanagan. It had that Mike Flanagan feel to it, of course. And I'm looking forward to what he does uh, next after this. Yeah, I'm right there with you guys. I think this was a big step up from last year. I also kind of shared your sentiments at the Midnight Club. Just 
if, I guess if you look if you look at Mike Flanagan's catalog and that's kind of the weakest one in there, you're still doing pretty amazing work because <laughs> I, I still think it was pretty good. But I just yeah, compared to the other ones, definitely not up there. Blind Manor is one that I've grown to appreciate even more since I first watched it. I did a Hill House rewatch recently, and it was somehow even better than it was the first time I saw it. Uh, and then Midnight Mass is hype on my list to rewatch because I love that too. So he's he's pretty much knocking out of the park whether he's doing movies or TV. He just knows what he's doing. He's great at it. Um, I was very excited for this show. And yeah, I don't know. I'm, I think in a way this kind of feel, feels like Mike Flanagan's epic, sort of, because it kind of takes elements from all of his past shows and kind of puts it into one like epic, uh, like sprawling story that takes place over like decades. You know, you get all the flashbacks that we were used to and stuff like Hill House, for example. You're getting kind of like what Austin mentioned, that episodic kind of storytelling but then you're also getting this like overarching like serial storyline throughout and that feels like a way better balancing job than he did last year at the midnight club that was like our biggest complaint about it it was like each episode was just these kids telling stories but then they still tried to make like this mystery throughout it it was like you're not giving any time to this mystery uh so this was like, a way better job at doing that and the show takes an elements of from midnight club where instead of kids meeting at a table to tell ghost stories mm. you get Roger Gusher telling his story at a fireplace throughout the show. So you still have that kind of element, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then even in something like um, like Blind Manor, like all the ghosts in that in particular stuck out to me. They did in Hill House, too, but I like the way they kind of handled like those secret ghosts in the background and then like kind of characters like you go like you see something move in the background. You're like, oh, my God, <laughs> like you didn't realize they were there. And then, of course, he has fun with a not being so secretive, just like putting them full front and it being terrifying. And then I also love kind of the allegory and how they tackled religion in Midnight Mass. This one feels kind of tackling like wealth, uh, greed, corruption, uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it honestly it hit on pretty much all cylinders for me. I definitely have some issues with it. I have some nitpicks. Uh, a lot of it revolves around certain things culminating, I'll say. I think like certain culminations of maybe flashback stories in the present day story. I was like, eh, I was a little iffy on that. So but I mean, like the journey was so good throughout that I really didn't care that I didn't love all aspects of the ending. But happy to tell everybody out there that this one gets a glowing recommendation from us. We all liked it, so go check this one out if you haven't already. But the rest of this episode is going to be us talking full-on spoilers. So if you have not watched The Fall of the House of Usher yet, or you haven't finished it, or you were like maybe like us where you watched The Midnight Club last, and you're like, eh, maybe I'll wait a little bit to watch a Flanagan thing. Don't wait. Definitely watch this one, and then come on back to this episode after you have to hear all our spoilery thoughts. And don't forget, you know, we had a little cameo in Midnight Club, but Zach Guilford, he's back in the spotlight in this series. So if you're a Friday Night Lights fan, he's back, baby. Julie. Julie. <laughs> Alright everyone, welcome to Spoiler Territory for The Faulty House of Usher. Before we get into our freeform discussion, guys, let's do some cast, crew, and critical reception talk. Alright, so The Fall of the House of Usher is, of course, created by Mike Flanagan, who you may know from Oculus, Gerald's Game, Doctor Sleep, The Haunting of Ill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, The Midnight Club. Uh, anything on Netflix that's been scary, he's probably touched. Um, it's also directed by Mike Flanagan, who did four of these episodes, and then Michael Feminari did the remaining four. Uh, Feminari has been a, a frequent cinematographer for most of Mike Flanagan's feature films and shows, and he has now been splitting duties equally with Flanagan for this series. 
The show is also written by Mike Flanagan, who wrote the premiere episode by himself and then teamed up with one partner per episode, with the exception of Danny Parker, who wrote the Telltale Heart episode by herself. Our score for the show is composed by the Newton Brothers, who have done the majority of Mike Flanagan's films and shows, and of course, based on The Fall of the House of Usher and other works written by Edgar Allan Poe. All right, going to our cast, we have Mr. Bruce Greenwood as Roderick Usher, Zach Guilford as young, young Roderick, Mary McDonald as Madeline Usher, Willa Fitzgerald as young Madeline, Carla Gugina as Verna, Henry Thomas returning as Frederick Usher, Samantha Sloan returning as Tamerlan Usher, Tania Miller as Victorine LaFrasade, Rahul Kohli as Leo Usher, Kate Siegel as Camille L'Espagne, Syrian Sepkota as Perry Usher, Michael Truco as Rufus Griswold, Katie Parker as Annabelle Lee, Matt Bidell as William Wilson, Ruth Codd as Juno Usher, Kylie Curran as Lenore Usher, and we got Carl Lumbly as C. Augustine Dupin, Malcolm Goodwin as Young August, and we got Mr. Mark Hamill as wow. Arthur Pym. Objection. <laughs> I assume I'm authorized to negotiate on your behalf. <laughs> oh, and a lot of those casts are also returning people. I just don't want to say that every time, but half of them have been in all of his other shows. So, And don't forget, Mark Hamill was in Star Wars. What? Yes, and Mark Hamill, make sure you know that he was Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. And also an right. AI version in uh, The Mandalorian. Do you think... <laughs> an AI version? That is true. <laughs> Do you think they... um? Do you think Mark Hamill annoyed Bruce Greenwood on set? Because after every take, he would go, you know, I played the Joker and you were bad. And he's like, shut up, you fucking loser. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, guys, there's our long cast and crew. Any positives, any negatives? What do we got? I think for the first time in my career on the Arnie's, I'm going to give a highlight to Mark Hamill. Whoa. I thought he was great. He stole the show from me every time he was on screen. I kind of want there to be a spinoff of just... Mark Hamill's Arthur Pym doing his little sailing voyage. I would I would watch mm. that show. I thought he was great. Um, fascinated by his character. Really enjoyed his performance. Like every time he was on screen, I was scared and intimidated by this lawyer. Um, fantastic. And spoiler alert, the honorary Mark Hamill most improved uh, actor of the year is I'm going to be nominating Mark Hamill this Whoa. year. Whoa. He's going to be a two-time winner? <laughs> <laughs> I know we joked a lot about him these past few years in the podcast, but I don't think he's a bad actor. I just think he has bad moments, especially in the Star Wars. <laughs> he just the picks recent, bad projects. <laughs> yeah, the reason more recent Star Wars trilogy was something else. He's just drinking green milk the whole time. Um, <laughs> as far as my shout out, it's really hard. I think everybody's so good in this. Um, but I think all the returning people... There's no question they're all really awesome. So I'll shout out somebody new, which is Bruce Greenwood. Man, just you can just tell this guy is just kind of like a, we even hear it in the show, a monster <laughs> deep down, but kind of tries to show love for his family at the same time. It's, it's a really complicated character. So I thought you played him really well. Mike Flanagan's really good at taking character actors and kind of putting them into leading roles. Like, think of what he did with Hamish Linklater in Midnight Mass. Uh, like, he yeah. kind of stole a show there. And same thing with Bruce Greenwood. It's it's awesome to see these actors, like, kind of get their moments to shine in these Mike Flanagan projects. Yeah, he was honestly, I mean, he was fantastic. For me, like, that was that would be, like, an awards-worthy, like, performance, like, nominated for, like, big stuff. I kind of feel like with genres like this, you don't often see them get that. But, I mean, I just thought he was fantastic. 
Love Zach Guilford as the young version, too. I didn't know that he was going to be such a big character. Like, we we're going to dive that much into the flashbacks. But I loved him and Will Fitzgerald as the younger counterparts. They were great. It's interesting, too, with, with the Roderick Usher character. Because there's moments where, like, you kind of like him, despite how evil yeah. and, yep. like, yep. manipulative he is. And then, the, and then they kind of pull you right back in. And it's like, oh, yeah, this guy's despicable. But I had moments where I was like, man, I kind of wish this guy was my grandpa. Yeah. No, I think. <laughs> That's a testament to the writing and to Bruce Greenwood, because I felt the same way. Like, you should not like this guy really at all. But yeah. I felt bad for him sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I kind of like this guy. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, and then the last ones I'll shout out is uh, I also I mean, yeah, I guess another great example and a newcomer. I believe it's he's a newcomer to the Mike Flanagan universe. Um, like Austin, you talk about him taking character actors or people that have maybe not had like major like leading roles in a while. I think Carl Lumbly is also a great example of that. I thought, I mean, just, that, that's like some great acting right there. Just having Bruce Greenwood and Carl Lumbly just acting on opposite <laughs> couches from each other is just yeah. fun to watch. He was great. And then the last person I wanted to shout out, just because I thought it was interesting, like like Austin mentioned, Mike Flanagan, he, whether it be like solo or with a, with a writing partner, he did write um, every episode except one. And that was Danny Parker, who wrote the Telltale Heart episode which I thought was a very creepy, fucked up, like anxiety-inducing episode. Um, I love the concept of it, so shout out to her as well. Um, but all right, guys, I think it's time to go a little bit deeper. Let's get into our freeform discussion and break this all down. Where are we going to start today? So I touched on this a little bit. Um, I did start to feel the pattern and kind of the formulaic nature of each episode as, you know, each episode is going to focus on a kid and you're going to see how they die. And it was interesting and that kind of pulled me in in the beginning, but I was hoping as we got towards the end that it was going to break its formula and it never really did. So just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I guess I, I don't think it really bothered me. I did notice it, I guess, after I guess after the second or third episode. And I was like, oh, OK, so this is how it's going to be. It's going to at the end of every episode, the kid will die and then we'll go on to another one. Um, yeah, it didn't really it didn't really bother me too much. I, I, I kind of liked it, I guess. I was like, OK. I, it kind of made me excited to see what's going to happen to the other kids once I figured out that's what the pattern was going to be. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting choice. And another thing going into the show, I had no idea. I didn't know, I did not expect or know what the structure would be. And once I caught on to it, I did get some nervous like um, reminders or like how I felt about the Midnight Club, where we mentioned that was a big problem for us, how they kind of tried to balance both telling episodic stories and having an overarching plot that kind of linked it all together. But I mean, they certainly kind of um, got rid of any of those nervous feelings pretty quick because I ended up really enjoying it. I love the simple nature of kind of the first episode being an intro to it. Then you get six episodes where you get kind of a focus on one of the kids. Uh, they all die at the end. And then you get the last episode to kind of wrap everything up. Pretty simple, but really, I was just in awe of how they did it. Like there was moments where I'd be watching, I'd be like, how are they doing this? Like, this is crazy. Like, because while each episode did mostly focus on one kid and their like, you know, ultimate death, like there were still so many things like being weaved throughout. Like you were still getting advancements of all the other kids like storylines. You were still yeah. getting flashbacks to Roderick and Madeline's origin. And it always felt like it was a purposeful flashback. It was tying into something that related to what was going on in the present. But then you also get reminded, oh, wait, this actually isn't the present with the kids. The present is the two weeks later where now you have oldest version of Roderick recounting his story and his sins. I was just like, how the f how are they doing this all at once? So, yeah, I, I definitely can appreciate that. Like, I noticed the formula. So maybe that's something to consider. Like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. But at, by the end, of, at the end of the day, like, I certainly wasn't bothered by it. And I, I really enjoyed how they told the story. 
Did you guys have a standout kid story? Yeah, I guess I'll go first because I kind of mentioned it. I mean, it'd be hard to like rank them, I think. But ultimately, I think I have to go with a Telltale Heart just because that was the one that just scared me the most. I mean, just this element of Victorine, like essentially accidentally killing her girlfriend and then going into immediate like wealthy, like fucked up billionaire person mode and not, you know, copping to it and basically just hiding the body. And you think that's going to be it. But then they keep they keep going and they reveal that she actually used the heart mesh she was developing on her dead girlfriend. And the sound, that ticking noise that keeps uh, bothering her is the sound of the heart pumping on a dead body. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. So that episode. And really she's like, it works. Look, we did it. Oh, and then like killing herself in front of her dad. Like, I don't know that that episode just might get my number one spot just because it was just so fucked up to me. And like, by the end, I was just like, oh, just like those close up images of the girlfriend's like face and like seeing her cut open. I was like, I don't, I don't like that. No, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I thought the, the imagery from Perry's death at the party was disgusting. And that gave me a pretty good horror fix with all the melted bodies. And like when they do the top down pan, and like basically everybody's still breathing and moaning. Ugh. That was that was pretty terrifying. Uh, the one that kept me, I think, most engaged was the Rahul Coley story. Um, I just thought the way they used the cat, like every time the cat popped out, made me jump every time. So that was really effective. And then the scariest setting for a death, I thought, was Camille's with the monkey cages. That Ugh. just that room really creeped me out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did she say to her right before it happened? She was just kind of like, she said, "Fuck it, I'll get mine." So yeah, I'm assuming so. she fought back. <laughs> Can you imagine that deleted scene? Watching <laughs> showed that. Like, a little Kate Siegel like, wrestling a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I did like whenever Verna would show up in all of their, yeah. their, their debacles, especially with uh, Samantha Sloan's character, Tammy. Uh, I love the speech that, that when she goes out. I, that made me so uncomfortable to watch. And I, I love yeah, the cringy nature of failing at public speaking. Yeah, like watching Madeline and, and, and um, Juno sitting there in the audience, like watching <laughs> Juno, Juno get hit by the there. mic stand. Whenever Juno got hit with the mic, I literally thought, like, wouldn't that kill you? <laughs> yeah, I right. thought. And the next scene when you see her where she just has like a little bruise on her forehead, I was like, your yeah. whole face should be caved in. <laughs> yeah, you should be in the hospital for like a month after that. <laughs> but she's on so much ligodone, she can't feel anything. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, if I'm going to say the Telltale Heart episode was fucked up, I, I think you could definitely say in a very different way, um, Frederick's episode may be even more fucked up. With um, Yeah, that one is rough. I rewatched um, the first episode of this after I had finished uh, the entire show just because I was like, man, all the kids get to a place where they're so messed up. Like, I, where did they start? And in a way, <laughs> Frederick has a lot of like really sweet and cute moments with his wife and his daughter in episode one. And then like looking where he gets by the end was like really like scary. and like. I guess you maybe you could say that it's the most fucked up because that is the only death that Verna talks about getting directly kind of involved with the death itself, like tricking him into um, putting the paralytic into his own cocaine and then like like having him die because of that. I thought was interesting. Yeah, really messed up. So I didn't catch this at all. Um, I had to read it online. But did you guys know that Verna is just a anagram for the Raven? So her character really is the Raven that kind of carries out through each episode. 
Yeah, I didn't know that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. You made a good point too, Keith. Like they, that's another thing I was kind of in awe of writing wise, like how they just planted her in each of these stories. And I don't know. I mean, I guess that could be like a good transition to talking about Verna, but I thought she was one of the most compelling and intriguing natures of the show because, I mean, where did you guys kind of start and end? And like, what was your journey with her? Because like, I think we're all kind of meant as an audience to think that she's not real, think that she's like death incarnate. But then at times in the show, you're like, well, she's clearly there. I mean, like um, Roderick, Madeline and Arthur are looking at um, security cam footage of for the the security guard when Camille died. And it's like, oh, they're seeing her. She's there. So it's like, oh, okay, I guess she is a real person, but she doesn't age. So it's like, yeah, I, I was just going on a fucking wild ride with her because like I was just convinced that she's just an apparition. She's not real. But then she is kind of real and tangible at the same time. Like very interesting. Yeah, she I think you're supposed to eventually end on that. She is the harbinger of death in this world. So I, I like that they stuck to that. I think the only thing I was a little disappointed in is, I guess, when they first start going through the photos of time with her and all the people she's been with, they kind of imply right then like, oh, Roderick and Madeline must have made a deal with her. And that's why this is happening. And so from that point on, that's what I assumed happened. And they that is actually what happened. Like there wasn't like another surprise with her character, I guess, is where that disappointed me just a little bit. Yeah, I did like learning about like her different powers and stuff like that. The, the fact that she could take a physical form you know, on her own and actually be there, like you said. So it was kind of cool to see her take different shapes and forms. And also she could fake her own death many times, like we get with Arthur at the end there. My favorite moment with her, I think, was when Camille goes up to take a photo of her and the camera flashes and she's an ape. That was that yeah. scare kind of oh, got yeah. me. That was really good. Um, Yeah, I do hear what you're saying, too, Austin, about like they're not being kind of like a final surprise with her. Uh, I was surprised about that but i think it at the end of the day it worked just because the actual scene at the end showing them making the deal i thought was just so sad and scary that they would do that and like fucked up so i was like this is such a good scene i'm okay that there isn't kind of that one more surprise nature of it um, and they didn't even hesitate immediately roger was like that's a deal for me and remember he already had two kids when they made that deal he already had two of the children so yeah it wasn't like a madeline situation where she's like making this deal and she's like well, what if I do have kids? Like, she wasn't even really thinking about that. I don't think she even wanted them. But yeah, like, Roderick makes this deal that will destroy your bloodline. And he already had two. It's like, oh. I, which I did want to talk more about that. So I'm glad you made that point. Like, did that work for you? Because I think Zach Guilford and Bruce Greenwood are both great in the show. I do think there is a little bit of a disconnect. And I don't know where the blame would fall there. I think maybe I would probably put it on the writing a little bit. It felt like there was, I guess, just a bit of a disconnect. Because also, like, I was really kind of sympathetic to young Roderick for pretty much all of his story. And then he kind of just out of nowhere betrays Dupont. I guess kind of Madeline was the one behind that because he would put them in a position to kill Griswold and take over. But and then making this deal like he was he seemed like he was a pretty good guy. And then kind of just yeah. out of nowhere, he's maybe the more ruthless. And I th yeah, I thought there was like a little bit of a writing disconnect there. They just felt like two separate characters to me. Like I couldn't buy that young Roderick grows up to the Roderick we see Bruce Greenwood portray, mainly because after he betrays Augie, the flip of how he treats Annabelle Lee is so quick. Like it, you can kind of tell he doesn't respect her or anything. But there were actually pretty nice and sweet scenes with them earlier in the show. So just it was hard for me to believe that the young Roderick we we met in the beginning, and then by like episode six where they betray Augie, like 
that he switched that much into being so ruthless. I, I don't know if there was a, not enough time allocated there or or what, but it was really hard for me to buy that that young Roderick that we met became the ruthless young Roderick we see by the end of the show. I think I did kind of feel that disconnect a little bit. Um, but I, I guess whenever he does make the deal with Verna in the bar, that's when you're kinda, he kind of shows his true colors. And then when he's like laying the bricks with Madeline... Uh, to yeah. trap Griswold in there. He's like, doesn't really say a whole lot. He's just kind of like doing it without question. Just like, oh, this is all planned and everything. But you could see that Madeline, I guess, was the one pushing his character a lot too. She was kind of like the, the oh, orchestrator yeah. of their brother-sister bond that they had going on. Oh, yeah. And I guess that's what I'm getting at is because like up until that point, I wouldn't have described young Roderick as evil. And then it just like you, you kind of think that the point of the story is to say, oh, maybe Madeline is actually kind of the one pulling all the strings for this family because she's the evil one. Because I thought there was no disconnect writing wise between Willa Fitzgerald and Mary McDonald. I thought they were both. Oh, yeah, that. for sure. And that tracked and that made sense to me. Uh, but then like, yeah, like you said, Keith, whenever he's like uh, laying the brick, it's like, oh, no, she wasn't really pushing him to do this. Like he is actually just evil. It's like, oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely some weirdness there. And that was kind of what I was alluding to in the non-spoiler section. Like some of the stuff with the culmination and in that, in this sense with the flashback stuff was kind of off. Like, oh, okay. That's a little weird, but still it worked more than it didn't. Maybe it was just Zach Guilford's sideburns because every time they cut back to present day, Roderick, those sideburns are gone. They used the hair from his sideburns to make Bruce Greenwood's mustache, I read. Ooh. Ah. So that's where it went. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess we kind of already talked about this earlier, but I wanted to put a button on it and see what you guys thought, because I guess Roderick is kind of our persistent protagonist through all the storylines. You know, he's um, in the flashbacks, of course, he's throughout all of the children's storylines. And then we have him, of course, with the framing device as well. Um, but what did you guys think of him? Like, what would you call him is how is what I was curious about? Is he evil? Is he a tragic like fallen character is it a combo of some things as he just sat like i don't know like by the end what would you label him as do you think i think i would have been leaning towards tragic but i think he, with his character you have to pull in the fact that he basically is the creator of the opioid crisis in this universe so there are a lot of deaths on his hands and he either is willingly looking the other way or knows what this is happening but cares more about his money so i think with that context pulled in and the fact that he made a deal to exterminate his bloodline and then kept having kids. You got to yeah, label him as evil. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty really bad. About that part of it. <laughs> oh, should have forgot about that. <laughs> I guess it would have been one thing if he like immediately got a vasectomy after and he's like, well, I'll just lose these two. <laughs> but no, he's like, I got to have more, right? <laughs> that is pretty I'll funny. just lose Frodrick. He sucks anyways. Yeah. He wasn't annoying. Yeah. <laughs> he's a pretty evil dude and like trying to keep his current wife, Juno, on it. Because he just, that's like, that's how narcissistic he is that he's like, you're my best, you're my greatest creation. When I found you in the hospital after your He basically accident. got to marry his product with her. Yeah. That's pretty much what he was saying. He's like, I got to marry my drug. Like you are my drug. My like, creation. Yeah. My creation. That's like he, she he was like, you're a monster. Dr. He's like Frankenstein, right? Yeah. 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 She's like, you're a monster. He's like, no, I am Dr. Victor Frankenstein. You there are the monster. Ugh. Yeah. 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 I'm kind of with you. So that was kind of what I was leaning towards. Like the entire show, I was like, wow, like I'm feeling bad for this guy. Like he is a tragic character. That's so interesting. Um, so do you think it's a positive that by the end we 
can kind of put a stamp on it and say evil? Like, do you think that works as a protagonist? Like, did you like that flip? Because he definitely dies evil. Uh, so yeah, I think I'm kind of with you. I think there was moments where I was like feeling bad and tragic. Like I said, the scene with him and Annabelle Lee at the end. I'm like, there are some sweet moments with his kids or whatever, but yeah, I think definitely we can confidently say evil here. And I think it's a positive because I'm glad they didn't try to redeem him. So many shows and projects want to redeem their main characters. And I'm glad they just stuck to the fact that, yeah, this guy's evil and you're supposed to feel that way about him too. Yeah, I think the disconnect that we were feeling with between him and Zach Guilford as a young Roderick is the fact that I think he forgets about the deal that he made with Vernon because he hasn't seen Vernon in 43 years since 1980. Um, and so the fact that his kids are dying is making him very sad because obviously it's his kids. So you try to, they try to, I guess, maybe pull in your heartstrings a little bit in that regard. But that's because he forgets about the deal. He's, he's like, oh, wait, I just know her. Where's she from? He keeps seeing Verna now. Also, were like, they thought Verna. that maybe they just got really drunk, too, because they walk out of the bar and they turn around and it's not there. And they're like, maybe it was just like some drunken night. Like, we don't remember. Uh, yeah. They also had just murdered a man, so I'm sure like yeah. they weren't in the best mental faculty. So, like, because I thought that was so stupid in the show, Keith. I was like, once they start dying, shouldn't he be knowing what's happening? And then I like towards the end that they revealed like they weren't expecting you know Perry to die and then the rest of them to die because like they just after 43 years or whatever they were like, well, that didn't really happen. Like we're, yeah. we're just you know, so it's all good. So I guess that's why he kept having kids because <laughs> he didn't believe that that would really happen. I did find the relationship with him and Lenore pretty interesting because uh, that seemed to be genuine. And doesn't he doesn't he call her the best usher or something like that? Yeah, he says she's the best of us. He also says she's the one that has the most Annabelle Lee in her. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also says he's proud of her for defying Arthur Pym and also defying her father. Her death was so sad, I thought. I like to see like the softer side of Verna or like I guess in this. Yeah, case, like, that was great. Kind of like seeing the softer side of the Grim Reaper, I thought was pretty cool. Like her. Knowing that she has to kill this child, but to give her some sort of peace, telling her that her mom's going to be okay. And like, here's all the good that she's going to do because like of having you in her life, I thought was really sweet. And then just watching her just like fall over dead was like, ugh. I guess before we kind of start to get to our closing thoughts here, I did want to talk a little bit more about the framing device. Because I was really invested and intrigued what had happened between Dupin and, uh, Roderick that like turned them into basically arch nemesis. <laughs> uh, Cause I like their kind of a chemistry and relationship in the past. Again, as I alluded to earlier, I was a bit surprised at the kind of nature of the betrayal. Although I understand because it seems like at that point, Madeline and him had already made the plan to kill Griswold and then that would allow them to rise to the top. So I get, I guess I get why he had to betray him. Um, still sad, but what do you guys think of kind of just the, the simple nature of the framing device of just them sitting across from each other um, and recounting the story. Was there any like kind of fun moments there? I thought this is one of the most engaging sequences of the show. Every time the two of them were on screen together, like that kind of had my undivided attention. And it, it was fascinating to see the like respect that Roderick still had for Augie. Like I think, I think Roderick still thought of Augie as a friend, even though Augie hated him. So that was interesting too. And it, it kind of seemed like he wanted to try and redeem himself in Augie's eyes before he fully exited the world i think so that's kind of how how i took it yeah we get that scene at the end with augie going to his grave and putting the recorder there and he's just like you know what i don't give a fuck about any of this he that's pretty much what he says yeah um you know the world does not need to know your confession and all that i thought that was kind of cool yeah and he's also putting it to bed he's bearing the story because i mean roderick had made points that like 
you know, where's your husband? Where's your family? This is the most important day of your life taking me down and they're not here. I think we're supposed to believe that maybe even in the first episode, they show that he has like a full on like investigative like board showing all the family members, like all like the red string tied them together. So he's obsessed with the ushers. Um, He's like he's doing good things, but it is an obsession. So I liked that being kind of the fina- like final moment. We're just like, I don't care. I got to go home to my family. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I liked him saying he's the richest man in the world. But I, I did like I did like the uh, the the dead kids and everybody else walking in the background throughout the the episodes of them sitting by the fire. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Again, I guess it kind of begs the question with this framing device of what was Roderick's like plan had Madeline not like you know reanimated or whatever you want to call it and killed him like was he truly intending to i guess because he he was there to confess like was he planning on i can't remember maybe they said in the show maybe you guys remember like was he going to go to jail like was he planning on dying no this was his final night that's what verna tells him and verna told him that whenever he's at the office watching the bodies fall oh verna says why did you stop here on your way to your house you only have a few hours left okay okay so he knew he was gonna die he just didn't know he was from a Madeline that he thought was dead. Uh, okay. <laughs> now that like, we're talking about it, I think something that I really liked about the ending, even though at first I was a little bit like, eh, on, on aspects of it, like you mentioned the, uh, you know, Augie going to the grave and saying he's the richest man in the world. I, I guess at the end of the day, we can label the ushers as like most of them are evil people, but I still think, you know, the titular, the fall of the House of Usher is kind of tragic, just like the way it like played out because like... The fact that Roderick and Madeline made this deal, knew that it would be the end of their bloodline. Um, and like, how do I say it? It's just like all the kids died. The one good one, Lenore, died. And then like you guys could have ended the deal by killing yourselves, but then you both died anyway. <laughs> like just like having that last shot of like, all their graves and you realize, oh, Roderick and Madeline are here too. So all of this happens and then they both died anyway. <laughs> it's like, I guess that in and of itself is a tragedy. Uh, then Verna giving one last fuck you, the way she like like nicely places like one important object on each of the grave, and then she gets to <laughs> Frodericks and just like flings a bag of coke on. <laughs> so good. All right, everyone. Well, that is the fall of the House of Usher. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Before we get to our awards, I wanted to do a little bit of future talk because I was thinking about on the last Flanagan episodes we had done, and it was kind of fun because it was like a yearly thing. Whenever we reviewed Bly Manor, like there was a fun part at the end of the episode where we were like. And guys, the cool thing is he's doing his big passion project next year. It's called Midnight Mass. It's about like like vampires on like a creepy religious island. And then at the end of that episode, we were like, he's doing this next this thing called the Midnight Club. This is exciting. And then at the end of that, we were like, ah, Edgar Allan. But like, we always knew what was coming. So I wanted to throw that in here because Keith, I don't know if you know this, but there is a bit of a bittersweet nature to this episode because it sounds like this will be the end of the yearly Flanagan horror projects on Netflix. Last December, Flanagan and his partner production company Intrepid Pictures signed a first-look overall TV deal with Amazon Studios. So that is likely where we will see him operate in the future. Stephen King is a massive supporter and fan of Flanagan, which led to him directing Doctor Sleep. And it looks like King has basically given Flanagan the keys to his kingdom, so to speak, and gave him the television rights to The Dark Tower, which Austin mentioned. And that's, of course, King's fantasy novel series and perhaps his most iconic and beloved series. The only major adaptation of it is the really bad 2017 film with Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey. I'm Um, a gunslinger. Oh, God. King seems to have been reluctant to have people adapt this, so maybe that will be Flanagan's next project. But there is also a lot more in the works outside of that. In April 2021, Flanagan was announced to be developing a film based on another Christopher Pike novel, The Season of Passage. 
Pike was the one that had written the Midnight Club book that Flanagan obviously adapted last year. Uh, but the King adaptations do not stop with the Dark Tower, by the way. In May 2023, it was announced that Flanagan would be adapting King's drama novella, The Life of Chuck, from the short story collection, If It Bleeds, into a feature film starring Tom Hiddleston and Mark Hamill, as we mentioned. So hopefully Mark is doing the Arthur Pym voice in that. That's my number one hope. Um, um Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> Objection! Stupid. Um, That's conjecture, and you know it. The point, of course, being it sounds like he gave us all these great series and is ready to move on to new projects and formats. And hey, who knows? After these, maybe he starts making similar style series to the Netflix content over on Amazon. Regardless, though, whatever he does next, I'm sure it'll be really cool, and he'll bring back his you know regular crew and actors that he always works with. So that'll be fun. So how do you guys kind of feel about this? Excited for the future? Do any of these projects kind of stand out to you? Will you miss the Netflix format of shows he's been doing since 2018 with The Haunting of Hill House? I'll definitely miss the Netflix format. But if if we get the same format and it's just on Prime, that's not going to bother me. I'll still be excited to watch it. Um, The Dark Tower is really interesting to me because that's an eight book series. So I feel like that has to be a TV show if they're going to do it right. So I wonder if this could be kind of our first Flanagan thing where we could get like multiple seasons of it which would be pretty exciting yeah we've had a good run i will miss them i don't want to say like oh, i'm good without me anymore i mean i will miss them but i never saw the dark tower movie with idris and mcconaughey it's uh, i heard it was pretty bad though <laughs> it's yeah it's terrible <laughs> but I, I like i said i do want to see a scary scary movie or maybe show as well parts of the dark tower could be that because that's like the center multiverse point of the stephen king universe so like there's room for Pennywise to show up in that. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that they could do with it. So that that is what is exciting to me. And mainly, if like if somehow Mike Flanagan gets to do anything with Pennywise, I will pay whatever I have to pay to see that. Yeah, yeah that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I'm excited for all this stuff. I think the life of Chuck sounds interesting. Uh, the idea of Tom Hiddleston kind of leading a Flanagan project sounds like a could be an interesting fit. So I, I like that. Uh, I don't know what the season or the Christopher Pike novel is. The fact that it's connected to the Midnight Club scares me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But no, I'm excited for all this stuff. Uh, but it is bittersweet. I've always looked forward to this. It's always like fun whenever we get close to Halloween because for the last few years, it's like, oh, there's going to be a new Flanagan show we can talk about. But I'm excited for the future. I'm excited for him to get back into movies too. I guess Doctor Sleep might have been the last one he did. So kind of watching him do like a condensed format, I think, is also exciting. But yeah, very excited for the future. Um, but yeah, I'll, I will miss it a little bit. I really like Dr. Sleep, too, so I'm excited for him to get back into movies, too. All right. Well, there you go. There's the future of Flanagan for you. Before we officially close out, though, let's do some Arnie's Podcast Awards, the part of our show where we take something positive, negative, or something in between from the TV show or movie that we just talked about, and we give it an award. Guys, what's going on your award today? Yeah, I'm going to give the Full Potential Award. And I say that because I think Mark Hamill has finally achieved his full potential as an actor. We've talked about it all the time. We know he's a great voice actor, but whenever he's a live action actor, he picks bad projects. Sometimes he's just really bad. Look at some of the Star Wars movies. But in this show, he's live acting and voice acting at the same time. So what? Mark Hamill has achieved his full potential. Wow. He's not, unfortunately, very bad. Yeah. No, he's honestly... He the Mark Hamill most improved actor of the year. Honorary. Fantastic news. Fantastic news. Wow. Hmm. I had a couple of awards rolling around in my head. I was going to give the uh, the Lazy Lawyer Award, but we I think we've touched on that enough. 
Uh, just the fact that he was sitting in the courtroom, falling asleep, just going, Jackson. But uh, I'm going to give give the, the heaviest drinker award goes to an older Roderick slash Bruce Greenwood. This guy must have had at least 30 glasses of this cognac, whatever he was drinking. <laughs> he poured so many drinks and he, he was not really drunk at all, it seemed like. So um, heavyweight for sure. Yeah, he actually inspired me because while I was watching those scenes, I turned on my fireplace and had a couple old fashions. So I wanted to be just like Roger Gusher. (laughs) He's a good role model. (laughs) Are you going to be like the next head of Fortunato? (laughs) I hope so. Well, first I have to make a deal to exterminate my bloodline. So, Oh, yeah, that's right. My award, of course, is going to the worst thing to wear while dying award. And that, of course, is our poor, poor friend, Rufus Griswold, having to slowly starve, I guess, to death while wearing a full jester costume or a Harlequin costume. I can't really think of anything worse to wear while slowly dying. (laughs) I thought it was funny that Roderick put the mask back on, too. Like, there's no way for him to itch his nose. It's got to be uncomfortable in there. Also, that brick wall was not soundproofed. If anyone walked by, he probably could have cried out for help. Well, I, I don't know if you guys caught it, because I was thinking that too. I was like, okay, it's going to probably take him a week to starve to death or, or die oh, of uh, thirst. Yeah, yeah. But remember she mentioned, she's like, he'll be dead in a day from the cyanide. So they did give him a dose right. of cyanide. Oh, that's right. And she's like, he really doesn't understand sherry. He couldn't taste it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Madeline. All right, guys. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we would really appreciate that. So continue to grow our show. Please leave us reviews as well, even if you want to write anything, leaving us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcasts truly does help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. We'll be back next Tuesday to close out the spooky season with one of our favorite episodes of the year with our best Halloween movie bracket. This will be our fourth, which is really crazy to think about. Um, and because we don't repeat movies each year, we have to dig deeper and deeper and get more creative with our picks. So we actually decided to only pick movies that came out in 2010 or later. So we're tackling only modern horror on this one. I wanted to kind of get you guys see where you're at um, and see how you're feeling about this one, because I know we weren't feeling too good going into last year's bracket after watching a few of those in preparation. So how are you feeling right now? Give us a primer for next week. I'm really excited for this one. I feel like this has kind of been a passion bracket for me. I made the case to do the modern horror movies. And I'm excited. I think we have a lot of really good, scary content to talk about. This might be the scariest bracket we've done yet. Yeah, I'm only four movies in, so I got eight more to go. I got a lot of catch up on this week. Uh, but so far, I'm liking them. I don't think I have a, a really bad one yet. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing these. and Because I think most of these I have not seen. I think I've only seen two out of the 12. Uh, so I'm excited to get some fresh scares under my belt. And last week, if you want to continue to spend more of Spooky Season with the Arnie's podcast, uh, Matt and Keith got together to talk about Saw 10. Who knew they actually made 10 of those movies, but they talked about the newest one. And it's also a sequel to the first movie, but it's the 10th film in the franchise. So, hey, good good for Saw. Good Good for for James Wan. Good for Saw. Good for Saw. Lastly, we want to hear from you. Please message us on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us thearniesmedia at gmail.com. What'd you think of the fall of the House of Usher? Would you make a deal with death or wealth and power, knowing it would doom your bloodline? What do you hope to see from Flanagan next? And lastly, what modern horror movies do you hope to see 
pop up on our bracket next week. Anything you say, we'll read on the show and react to it live on our latest episode. That's right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed The Folly House of Usher and our review of it. We'll catch you next time for the best Halloween movie bracket. Can't wait. It's going to be a great episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I believe this one comes out on Halloween Day. So that's a little fun spooky for you. Um, so we'll see you then. Goodbye. And nevermore. Nevermore. See you. I'm Chuck. <laughs> 